Hey everyone, I'm Janet B. Recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Um, so I can't think of too many people who feel more lonely than the wife of an alcoholic, right? Imagine waiting up for him night after night, not knowing when or if he's coming home. And if he does, whether he'll be sullen and silent or raging and abusive. And imagine if you have kids and you watch your children learn how to be silent and tiptoe around the house and make themselves small so that daddy doesn't notice them. It's easy to imagine that this wife, even though she may have been a woman of faith her entire life, it's easy to, for, to imagine her whispering in the dark, God, where are you? Do you even hear me anymore? And then we get to this chapter, Two Wives, where it says on page 104 that we want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to overcome. And you can almost feel these wives, right, who've gone before her, reaching out to this struggling wife through the book to say, you matter to us. And I believe that if we listen closely to the words in this chapter, we can hear God saying, and you matter to me. And of course, that's what I always want to hear. And I think what we all really want to hear. Um, so just a minute before I get into the meat of this chapter, I want to just circle back a bit to chapter four, We Agnostics, where they tell us the main object of this book. And it's to, quote, enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem, end quote. So if this power, this God, is going to enable me to solve my problem, and of course, the first problem I wanted him to solve was my food problem, this God must care about me, must love me. So that's the God, the loving God who we matter to and who we're going to try to encounter in the pages of this chapter, Two Wives. Um, this chapter generally doesn't get a lot of airplay. Often people skip it saying, well, I'm not married to an alcoholic, so it doesn't apply to me. But I think there's a lot of principles we can apply here in our own recovery because my recovery isn't primarily about food plans and meetings. It's about how I can practice spiritual principles in all my affairs. And for someone new, that might sound weird, right? When we come to our first OA meeting, all we want is to get a food plan and stop binging. Um, for me, that didn't work. Finally, I was told I had to change. I had to have this weird thing called a spiritual experience. Like, what is that? Um, but page 25 of our book explains it and says it's basically when God rewires my heart. Okay, well, how does that happen, right? Um, do I just say a prayer and God comes in with his like gardening tools? Well, that didn't work. I tried. Um, but what does work is this 12-step program, which tells me I need to get a conception of God, surrender, clean up my past, and then practice these principles in all my affairs. Right. Of course, there's some basic spiritual right away, honesty, unselfishness, and we don't have to wait until we're through the steps to start practicing them right away. We're told we have to be honest. We have to be unselfish. And the chapter to wives is chock full of some like really cool spiritual principles and even better, some wonderful promises if we practice them. Um, we don't have time to go through every single principle. So I just picked out the ones that had meaning to me and that I hope would be helpful. Um, 
the first half of the chapter is really about how to help someone who's an addict. And halfway through, it just does like a big switch, like, okay, wife, now let's talk about you and your spiritual issues. So let's dive in on page 104, if you have your book. The last paragraph there says, and this is the wives talking to a wife who's still struggling. We want to analyze mistakes we've made. We want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to be overcome. I love that because that's telling me God is going to do one of two things if I work these principles. He's either going to change my situation or he's going to change me so that I'll be okay in a hard situation. Um, to me, that's a big demonstration of how much I matter to God, right? Door number one, he sits at his cosmic computer and rearranges the universe so that my situation is changed for the better. Or door number two, he just changes my heart. Um, bottom of page 106, it talks about what happens to an addict as the sprees grow closer. I'm sure we can relate to this. It says that the deepening pall of remorse, depression, and inferiority settled down on our loved ones. And these things terrified and distracted us. Distracted us from what? Um, I know for myself, if I'm overly focused on a family member, I'm distracted from God. Um, the way I like to think of it is like swimming in one of those, you know, lap pools that has the lanes roped off and I'm swimming toward God. I actually like visualize it. And if I start swimming in another lane, I lose focus on God and what he has for me to do. Other people's recovery and the future are things that are not in my lane. And on the next page, 107, it says that like animals on a treadmill, we patiently and wearily climbed, falling back in exhaustion after each futile attempt to reach solid ground. It reminds you of that little hamster in the cage on that wheelie thing, right? He's working and working and not getting anywhere. And that was me. My first six, seven years in OA, I worked really hard, but I didn't get anywhere. Oh, I did. I got worse. Um, even though I was doing a lot of work, but I wasn't doing the right work. It was like being a diabetic and the doctor telling me to take penicillin. And I take penicillin. Well, I'm doing the work. I'm doing what I'm told but I haven't been told the right thing. I need a new doctor who gives me correct information. So I'm just gonna, as an aside here, caution everyone, if you're looking for a sponsor, read this book and make sure to vet your sponsor that your sponsor has done the work in this book and the steps, the way it's outlined in the book and can guide you through it. Okay, um, so continuing on page 107, um, and I'm sorry, I. I have a lot to say and not a ton of time. So I'm just going to talk Jersey and talk fast. Um, so page 107, it says that the wives endured watching their husbands go to sanitariums, hospitals, jails, and the wives say, we naturally made mistakes. And I really like that because most of us fall off the side of the bed of either being too easy or too hard on ourselves. Um, I was sometimes the second type, I'd make a mistake in a difficult situation. And afterwards I'd say, forget it. I have nothing. I have no recovery whatsoever. But they're saying, sometimes things are hard and we're going to make mistakes. And all we should do is fix them 
and move on. Um, of course, we don't want to fall off on the other side of the bed. Whenever we catch ourselves saying, well, I'm only human, mm, we're probably being too easy on ourselves. If I lose my temper, um, even if my kids are annoying, 100% of the time, it's my fault. But what I can do is learn from it, make amends if I have to, ask God to help me change and move on. Making mistakes doesn't make me unworthy of love. Um, page 108, second full paragraph says, try not to condemn your alcoholic husband no matter what he says or does. He's just another very sick, unreasonable person. When he angers you, remember he's very ill. So I see two things they're telling me to practice here with difficult people. And again, this could be a husband. It could be a child, a boss. First, it says, don't condemn. Well, why? Well, condemning never works, right? Who of us got into recovery because someone said to us, you know, you're really a horrible compulsive eater. You're overweight. Your food's out of control. You're ruining your life. You're ruining other people's lives. Get your act together. And then we said, yeah, thanks for that information. I didn't know that. Thanks for that condemnation. I think I'm going to work this a 12-step program and get my act together. It never happens that way, right? Also, if I'm condemning someone, it's dangerous for me spiritually, because if I'm condemning you, then I'm at the top of the mountain looking down at you and guess where you are. And it means I'm loaded with pride. And if I've the only thing that can happen then is I'm going to tumble down that mountain and fall on my butt. Um, it also says when he angers you, remember, he's very ill remembering that's a verb it's an action step i can take to remind myself that a person is ill right when we were learning how to resolve resentments it says sometimes people we have to see people as perhaps spiritually sick if i'm living with a raging alcoholic safe to say he's spiritually sick and i need to have compassion right the same kind of compassion i have now for my mom who has alzheimer's before I knew she had Alzheimer's, I would get frustrated when she would like forget things and say, why aren't, didn't you pick me up when you said you were supposed to, when I was right on time. Um, but once I learned, I saw her, started seeing her as sick, I had compassion and I didn't get angry. So sometimes it helps to see people as spiritually sick or spiritually developing. They talk about four different types of drinkers and they give very specific instructions on what we can do depending on what type that person is. But they also give some general principles that can be applied to all, page 111. They say the first principle of success, never be angry. Well, that's kind of hard if we've got someone who's like mentally ill or drinking or abusive. Um, but remember when we were learning to resolve resentments, it says we can't harbor resentments. I can get angry, you know, I mean, it's natural. I can't control my feelings, but I'm not entitled to wallow in it. I have to acknowledge I'm angry, but then I have to immediately do something about it, inventory it, share it with someone, ask God to remove it and make any amends I need to. And they tell us that patience and good temper are necessary because again, it's a disease, not a moral issue. And I think it would serve us well to remember that when we're sponsoring. If our sponsees you know, go off their food plan, they're not bad. 
it's not a moral issue. Um, and I always have to remember, I just got on the train a stop or two ahead of them. That's the only difference between me and someone who's still in the food. My job is to help pull them onto the train. Second principle they give us, it says, you should never tell him what he must do about his drinking. And I say what he must do about his fill in the blank, right? My husband, he used to smoke. I didn't like it. I never told him what he needed to do about his smoking. Um, ultimately, he did quit, but not because I nagged him. Um, the third principle, be determined that your husband's drinking, again, or your husband's fill in the blank or your kids fill in the blank um, is not going to spoil your life. There is nothing anyone else can do that can spoil my life. The book says it's possible to have a full and useful life, even though your husband continues to drink. And I would say if a woman could have a full and useful life under those conditions, it's possible under pretty much any conditions. Remember, our book tells us recovery isn't dependent on circumstances. It's dependent upon our relationship with God. And if I'm too upset over what someone else is doing, then there's a problem with my relationship with God. Um, I would say if I look back the past 20 years of my life, the thing that most blocked me from a more full and a more useful life was anger and fear surrounding my children. Um, and sometimes well-meaning friends would say to me, well, it's normal that you worry so much about them. You're, you're a mother. Mm -mm, not helpful. I worried so much because my attention was in the wrong place. Um, here's a prayer that I found that's really helped me a lot with my kids. So if any of you are struggling with the same issue, hopefully it'll help you. Lord, I see that I don't really love my children too much. I love you too little in proportion to them. Only if I love you supremely will I love everything else well and properly. Lord, please capture my heart. I pray for God to capture my heart so that I love him supremely because only if I do that can I love everyone else properly. Fourth principle they list here on this page says, do not set your heart on reforming your husband. You may be unable to do so, no matter how hard you try. Remember, this program tells me to live and let live, so I can't set my heart on reforming my husband's smoking, my college kid's deci decision to not go to church, or anyone's eating, drinking, gambling, decision to take a job, not take a job, who they invite to their wedding, how they live their lives. Um, so they've told me four principles so far. Don't get angry. Don't tell someone else what to do about their drinking. Be determined that nothing anyone else does will spoil your life. And don't set your heart on changing a person. And then they say, okay, we know these suggestions are difficult, but you'll save many a heartbreak if you can succeed in observing them. So that's really helpful to me because if my heart is broken, I can ask myself, which of these principles have I violated? Have I gotten angry and harbored resentment? Have I been telling someone what they need to do about what I perceive as their problem? Am I letting what someone else is doing destroy my life? And is my heart set on changing someone? I can always hope, I can always pray, but my heart needs to be set on one thing primarily, and that's God. 
Page 115, fifth principle, says you must be on guard not to embarrass or harm your husband. Remember, we're told back in chapter six, I have no right to save my skin at another person's expense. So a good principle when we're doing 10 steps is if I have a resentment against Susie Q, there's no name Susie Q here, right? Okay, good. Susie Q, I want to call someone who doesn't know Susie Q. I'm not going to call Susie Q sponsor or sponsees or close friends. It's best as much as possible to talk about, if I have a resentment against someone, to talk about it with someone who doesn't know that person. I have no right to save my skin at another person's expense. And then finally, we get a beautiful promise on um, the end of the second paragraph, page 115. It says, your new courage, good nature, and lack of self-consciousness will do wonders for you socially. So if I practice these principles, it tells me what the fruit is. I'm going to have more courage, more self-confidence. My fears are going to go away or at least lessen. Um, I'm going to have a good nature because I'm not going to be all tense from worrying and trying to control the world. And I'm not going to worry about what other people think of me. So of course, I'll be a better friend. Sixth principle on page 115, in dealing with kids and their father, it's best not to take sides in any argument he has with them while drinking. The rule I set for myself when my kids were little, unfortunately, I broke it a lot of times, but my rule, my, my goal was unless my husband was doing something dangerous, I was not to interfere. Um, I think we have to be careful with the word dangerous because I could interpret it as dangerous as anything I don't like. Um, like I thought taking them to McDonald's was dangerous. Um, but I'm talking about like, I would keep my mouth shut unless... I thought my husband was, let's say, going to leave our two-year-old in the bathtub alone and go outside, which he never did. But that is how I would define dangerous. Um, in hindsight, I should have kept my mouth shut a lot more. Um, page 106 says something similar. We tried to hold the love of our children for their father, which again, may be an instinctive thing for a mother to do if she thinks her husband's doing everything wrong. Um, how many times when my kids were younger, did I try and manipulate relationships and think things like, okay, if I don't tell my husband to go outside and play basketball with Daniel, he's not going to have a good relationship with Daniel. And when Daniel grows up, he's going to remember my husband's neglect and hate him. Well, Daniel is 20 now. He adores my husband. Um, Sadly, even more than he adores me. Not really sadly. I'm, I'm thrilled that he has a great relationship with, with my husband. Um, so again, my job is to let other people have their own relationships, not try to manage and control them. Um, okay, bottom of page 115, seventh principle. Don't lie on behalf of your husband in order to protect him. We are people who have to be honest, even if there will be consequences for another person. In the chapter two employers, it says, sometimes an employer will worry that the guy's drunk when his wife calls and says he's sick. And it says, if he is trying to recover and he is drunk, he'll tell you, even if it means the loss of his job, for he knows he must be honest if he would live at all. So we don't shield people from consequences by lying. And we don't lie at all, ever. We're people who, who can't lie. 
page 116, suddenly there is a shift. It's like they're saying, okay, wives, up until now, we've been talking to you about how to help your husband, but now let's talk about you. They say, yeah, we've said how much better life is when lived on a spiritual plane. And if God can solve the age-old riddle of alcoholism, he can solve your problems too. And I can just see a wife reading this and like, wait, me too? No, no. I was just, you know, here to help the drunk I'm married to. And they're saying me too? No way, Jose. But they gently press on saying, we wives found that like everyone else, we were afflicted with pride, self-pity, vanity, self-centeredness, selfishness, and dishonesty. Um, and they say, yeah, you think um, maybe you're good and you'd be okay if your husband stopped drinking. And they say, no, wives have to put spiritual principles to work in every department of our lives. So if we practice humility, gratitude, unselfishness, honesty, and self-sacrifice, it promises us that God will give us a radically changed attitude toward my husband. I love that. Like God sees me. I matter to God. God himself will see the work I'm doing, even if my husband doesn't. And God will radically rewire my heart. So as a result of applying these spiritual principles, it tells me here the gifts that God will give me. Lack of fear, lack of worry, lack of hard hurt feelings, gifts from our creator. And then they tell me something that I actually don't like very much. Um, it says on page 170, 117, all problems will not be solved at once. The old problems will still be with you. And this is as it should be. This is as it should be. I mean, if I were in charge, I would say God should just wave a magic wand and make all my problems go away the second I do this work. I mean, I'm just saying, if I were God, that's how I would do it. Um, but I think I'm learning that whenever I'm going through a difficult situation, these situations force me to rely on God more and force me to look at the idols in my life. That's why things aren't resolved immediately because my heart still is an idol factory. Um, do I have an idol of a perfect marriage? That's what some of us do. Do I have an idol of perfect children or the perfect relationship with my children, which drove me for so many years? Um, I was often paralyzed with fear that when my kids grew up and were no longer under my control, that they wouldn't love me anymore. And that fear led me to alternate between being overly lenient to manipulate them into loving me and overly mean to retaliate when I didn't think they loved me right. Happy to report God is good. These relationships have been totally mended. I have great relationships with both my kids now, but it took a lot of inventory work and amends and prayer. Um, here's a prayer I use, which of course can be used to fit to you know, change it to fit anything that's too important in our lives. Lord, I entrust my children to you now. I release them to your protective care, knowing that they're much safer with you than in my clinging hands. Please remove all idolatry of my children and my relationship with my children from my heart. 
so I don't endanger them or myself. Please remove all fear that I won't matter to them. I release my children to you and I release my fear to you so that I'm free to cling to your hand. Thank you that as, as I entrust my children to you, you are free to shower blessings on them. Thank you that your presence goes with them wherever they go. Thank you that you will guide my children and help them learn to trust you. And thank you that I matter to you. Thank you that your presence stays with me as I relax and trust you. Lord, I am excited to watch and see what you will do. Okay. Page 117 in the book, they continue on and say that these workouts, meaning difficult discussions we sometimes need to have with our husbands or someone else, should be regarded as part of our education. It says you will make mistakes, but if, so it's a conditional promise, if, if you're in earnest, they won't drag you down. Instead, you will capitalize them. Well, what the heck does that mean to capitalize on my mistakes? I don't think it means I'm going to be 100% free of fear and anger. For me, not in this lifetime. But here's what can happen. Our bounce back period can get shorter. So where maybe before I got a resentment or a fear and I would be angry for three days or afraid for three days or so depressed I couldn't get out of bed for three days, then maybe after working these steps and practicing it for a while, it's down to two days and then one day, and then two hours, and then 30 minutes. Um, I can't always get it down to 30 minutes, but I can generally keep it at way less time than I used to. And by the way, that's one way we can tell if we're growing spiritually, if our bounce back period is shorter. Um, another way we capitalize on our mistakes is looking for our part. The steps teach me I need to look at my part. So if one of my kids, let's say, is mouthing off to me, for example, and I get really upset, I do not just stop with, she mouthed off to me. My part is I had an expectation that my kids treat me with respect. I need to go deeper, right? The book says we have to look at the flaws in our makeup. What's my flaw there? I'm making an idol out of how much I matter to my children. Um, that's my idol. And again, we can tell if something's an idol when it doesn't just hurt our feelings, when it feels like we got punched in the gut and can't get up. So I look at my problems or what my idols are. I talk to someone who won't enable me. We all know those people who won't enable us. They're the people we don't want to call. Um, I go to God and I repent. I say, God, I'm sorry. I ask him to remove it, remove the idol remove the fear, remove the anger, and set about practicing the opposite. For me, the opposite of idolatry is true worship of God. So maybe we can go sing a worship song to God. We practice the opposite. Um, next principle. See, this chapter is full of them, right? Um, page 117, it says, often you must carry the burden of avoiding resentments or keeping them under control. And in the margin, I wrote, it's not fair. And maybe it isn't fair, but it's loving. Remember, as um, our friend Melissa says, fairness is not my code anymore. Love and tolerance is my code. Um, love is my code. And what a great opportunity to practice self-sacrifice, which the book tells me I have to do. If someone utters a snarky remark, I try not to start an argument. I can just 
absorb it and let it go. That's a way of practicing self-sacrifice. Now, I'm not saying if someone is married to someone who's beating them, they're supposed to just take it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an occasional insensitive remark. Sometimes it's okay for me to just let things go. Sometimes I can just say my husband had a bad day. Um, next principle, page 118, second full paragraph. It says, your husband knows he owes you more than sobriety. He wants to make good, yet you must not expect too much. And I think there are two things for us here. If we don't expect too much, then we're not disappointed, right? We're always happily surprised. But also when it says he wants to make good, I think it's telling us we're supposed to assume the best about people, that people generally want to do the right thing. Um, so if someone does something and I can ascribe either a good motive or a bad motive to their behavior, love demands that I ascribe a good motive to their behavior. Next principle, page 119. When resentful thoughts come, try to pause and count your blessings. So we can intentionally look for our blessings. I have a job. I have heat in my house in the winter, air conditioning in the summer, a husband who loves me and supports my recovery work. And by the way, I don't just sit there and put these things on an app. I do list them on an app, but then I purposefully, intentionally go through and thank God for them, right? This isn't a homework assignment where I just count my blessings on an app. I, I talk to God about them. I thank God for them. Um, that's another way of building our relationships with God. Bottom of page 119, beautiful principle. Find a great cause you can live for. You probably need fresh interest as much as your husband and a great cause to live for. How lucky are we, right? We get to recover. We get to help others and get closer to God in the process. Um, I personally can't think of a greater cause. And they tell us on the top of page 120 how to live that out. Think about what you can put into life instead of how much you can take out. So maybe when we go places, we think, how can I contribute here instead of what's in it for me? We change it to how can I best serve God and the people here? And finally, um, they talk about what if the husband drinks again? And I love how just tenderly they deal with this on page 120. They say, perhaps your husband has made a fair start and things are going well, but then he gets drunk. What do you do? They say, if you're really satisfied, he wants to get over drinking, you need not be alarmed. So what they're telling us here is that it's possible to want to recover, but stumble. Remember um, in the forward to the second edition, it says that 25% of the original fellows who really tried, that's the words they use, who really tried, recovered after some relapse. Imagine if they'd given up on that 25%. And by the way, I would have been included in that 25%. So they tell us not to be alarmed. And they say, though it's infinitely better that he have no relapse at all. There's a saying that people say, like, relapse is part of recovery. It isn't, and it shouldn't be. But they say, if it is, um, it's not a bad thing if, and here's the only way a relapse can be helpful, if the person sees he has to redouble his spiritual activities. 
What does that mean to redouble our spiritual activities? Work the steps harder, more self-sacrifice for others, more time with God, more surrender of things that I'm not quite willing to surrender that I think God wants me to, more God, more service, more love. And they tell us that if he gets drunk, they're talking to the wife, they say, don't blame yourself, right? I am never the cause of someone else's drinking or binging and no one else is ever the cause of mine. Okay, we're in the home stretch here. Um, bottom of page 120, it says, God has either removed your husband's liquor problem or he has not. If not, it had better be found out right away. Then you and your husband can get right down to fundamentals. If a repetition is to be prevented, place the problem along with everything else in God's hands. There's a lot here and a lot that can help us as compulsive eaters. So we'll try and break it down. It says, God has either removed your husband's liquor problem or he has not. Or for us, God has either removed our compulsive eating problem or he has not. What does that mean? Is God like up in heaven flipping a coin, right? Heads, I'll remove Janet's eating problem. Tails, I won't. Mm -mm. No, they're telling me if God hasn't removed my food problem, it's because I've not placed my food problem and everything else in his hands. Remember, chapter four tells us that either God is everything or else he is nothing, meaning that either I give God everything or it's as if I've given him nothing. I can't give him my food plan, but cheat on my husband or cheat on my taxes. God gets it all. So I think they're telling us is to see, um, to look and see what we haven't placed in his hands and then just do it. That's what the fundamentals are. This um, always makes me think of like middle school social studies where we learn about like the kings and the serfs. And as long as the serfs were on the king's land, when the invading army came to attack, the king pulls up the drawbridge. And if I'm on his land, I am protected. But if I wander off through dishonesty, lack of surrender, refusal to make amends or things like that, then when the invading army comes and I'm not on the king's land, I'm not safe and protected. Not because the king doesn't love me, but because I've wandered off. So they're telling us we're liable to drink or eat compulsively if we wander off the king's land. But the good thing about this king is that he will always, 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 always take us back. Okay, um, last page of this chapter, page 121, the writers of the chapter say, we realize this is hard stuff, but we really want to help you avoid unnecessary difficulties. And they conclude by saying, good luck and God bless you. They're asking God, right? The creator who flung the, the sun, the moon, the stars and everything else um, to bless us to bless, to confer his divine favor on us. And if we approach him with humility, he always does. Because whether we are wives living with raging alcoholics who feel we are unseen and unheard or compulsive eaters who feel our lives are unmanageable and no human power can save us, we matter. We always, always matter to God. And with that, I pass. Thanks.